As a church, we've spent the last few months going through a teaching series on a letter in the New Testament, which is the second half of our Bibles, um, a letter written by a guy called Paul, and it was written to a church in a place called Ephesus, which is in the area which is now modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to this church, and he's telling them about various exciting things that we've looked at. If you want to find out about all of them, just go and download the, download the sermons, or we'll never get on to today's message. But um, what we've been looking at for the last few weeks um, is what it looks like to live as a Christian. Now that you've been saved, now that you've been added to God's family, now that you've been redeemed and all of the amazing things that we've been singing about in those songs, what does it look like to actually live as a Christian? And a few weeks ago, Steph pinpointed a, a verse which talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. So rather than getting drunk on wine, so rather than being influenced by wine or any kind of alcohol or any kind of substance that would influence you in a way as, in which you lose your humanity, Paul says, who, who writes this letter, he says, you need to be influenced by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God. And one of the things that being filled with the Spirit, living a life that's filled with the Spirit leads to is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the last few weeks we've looked at different ways that that works. So Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, singing to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And then he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he explains how that works in family or in the household. And so a few weeks ago, we had the idea of how that works with husbands and wives. Then last week, we had the idea of how that works with uh, children and parents. And now the third week, we are going to get how that works with masters and slaves. So we're going to read from Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, if you could open up and we'll read through it and I'll explain what's going on in this passage. Okay. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Okay, for the last minute, I'm glad no one's walked out, but some of you have probably been thinking, either you've been at church for a while and you're like, I just don't want to walk out. I know that it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out. Some of you might have never been to church before and you're like, oh my goodness, there's a, a, a message on slaves and masters. How on earth can these guys ever look at themselves in the mirror and, and think that they're doing the right thing? This is awful. This is terrible. How on earth can God ever write anything like this about slavery and sla slaves and masters? You might look at that and you think, does, does that mean that God would say to the many Christians who opposed the slave trade in the 19th century and to the many Christians who oppose modern slavery that actually it's fine? Okay, so that might be what, what we're thinking currently. What would you have written if you were Paul? Okay, glad none of us are because you might have got a slightly different New Testament. But what you'd written, you we would probably have wanted to write something like slaves, flee from your masters because Jesus has set you free. Run away. You don't want to be owned by anyone anymore. Run away from them. Or, and then address the masters and say, masters, set your slaves free because everyone's equal in Christ. The problem is Paul doesn't write that. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, why doesn't he do that? Because there's evidence from elsewhere that Paul, it, in an ideal world, would not like the idea of there being slaves or of there being masters. So why on earth does Paul here, instead of saying slaves run away from your masters and masters set your slaves free, why does he say slaves obey your masters and why did he say, masters, 
don't set them, well, he doesn't explicitly say set them free in this passage. He says actually treat them well. Why doesn't he just say set them free? I think there's a few things we can think through before we actually start looking at this passage and how it would apply to us in a context where we don't really have slavery. And if we do, then it is something that we should oppose. Just put that out there right at the start. I'm not going to be doing a sermon arguing that slavery is okay. That's not where I'm going with this. But a few things that we might want to just bear in mind. First thing is Paul is not a politician. And the Roman Empire, which is the context in which this was written, was not a democracy. So Paul doesn't actually have the power to suddenly abolish empire-wide slavery. Okay, so that's the first thing to bear in mind. Actually, we have Christians nowadays who are able to be involved in politics in democratic countries and as such actually can have an influence for good. Where they see injustice and stuff that God hates, they can actually do something which has some kind of power in order to change that at a kind of nationwide level. Paul can't do that. He's one individual Roman citizen in the midst of a massive empire where slavery is just a thing. And so he can't, at that point, write a letter to the Ephesians and say, God says no more slaves, therefore the empire will stop having slaves. That just, so that's just one thing to bear in mind. The second thing is, if Paul had said, slaves, flee your masters, he's talking to a lot of slaves who have non-Christian masters. If he just said, flee your masters, and all the slaves flee, it wouldn't have gone too well for the slaves. He would have essentially been saying, slaves, flee your masters and be killed for it. So just kind of pastorally, Paul's not going to encourage slaves to just run away because he knows that actually they'll run away, but they'll get a worse deal out of it because they'll end up probably end up on a cross being crucified. That's what generally happened to runaway slaves in the Roman Empire. So second thing to bear in mind is fleeing slavery is probably not going to be an option for people. And third, even if slavery did disappear overnight let's say something dramatic happened and the whole of the roman empire decided let's abolish slavery all slaves are set free you are left with by various estimates about a third of the population of the roman empire who have no way of actually surviving anymore so for all the bad that comes out of slavery for a lot of people that was actually the way they lived so they would they would work for their master and the master would provide food for them and in lots of situations would actually give them money and sometimes they could end up buying their freedom but if suddenly all slaves were set free you'd have a situation in which about a third of the roman empire suddenly would find themselves jobless and unable to provide for their family so what i think paul is doing here and in light of other stuff he says elsewhere in the new testament is he's making the best of a non-ideal situation he's saying slavery exists in the world that we live in Ultimately, the, the ideal would be that there is no such thing as people who own other people. But bearing in mind that that is the case in the world that we live in, how are we going to make the best out of a situation that is ultimately ungodly? And that's what he's doing in this passage. So before you look at this and think, I cannot believe that the Apostle Paul would ever say something like that. He is not here saying, I completely endorse slavery and all that it stands for. He's essentially, he's basically saying, this is the situation that a lot of you guys are in. How are you now going to work that out as Christians? And actually, that could apply to a lot of situations in our lives where we think we are not in a situation that would be ideal. We can't actually get out of it. But how am I going to work that out as a Christian? How am I going to make the best out of a situation that is not ideal? And actually, another thing to realize is Paul actually does, in many other places in his letters, speak very, very subversively of slavery. So what 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about, he, he talks about people, he says, remain in the situation in which you were called. So in other words, if you became a Christian whilst you were a Jew, don't seek to necessarily, you don't have to kind of do some bizarre operation to remove the marks of you being a Jew. And says, if you're a Gentile, don't become a Jew when you be if you become to Christ. And he also says, if you're a slave, 
don't, necess- like, don't necessarily feel like you need to be set free. He says, but if the opportunity arises, take it. And then he says, because a slave in the Lord is a free man of Christ. And likewise, a free man of Christ is a slave to Christ. So in other words, he's saying, you know what, well, ultimately, your master is God. And so whilst in an earthly sense, you may be someone's slave before God, you're ultimately his servant, you're his slave, you're not that guy's slave. So he speaks very subversively of it. Also in Philemon, he's writing a a message to a guy who actually does own a slave, and uh, a slave called Onesimus, he's run away and Paul's found him, and he ends up helping him out whilst Paul was in prison, and he's sending Onesimus back to his master, and he writes back to him and he says, I want, basically, I want you to accept him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And he gives some hints that kind of you read between the lines and you think Paul is kind of asking Onesimus to do the right thing, which would be, and I would, essentially, I like you to set him free, seems to be what he's trying to say. So he, he speaks very subversively and clearly says, 1 Timothy 1.10, he includes enslavers in a list of lots, of lots of vices, which are basically sinful things. So he would say people who kidnap other human beings and sell them into slavery, that is evil. That is the kind of thing that God looks at and says, that is wrong, that is demonic, that is evil. So Paul does not endorse the idea of slavery. He's writing here to people who are slaves or who are masters and saying, okay, bearing in mind this is the situation, how are we going to best deal with it? All right, so hopefully that just kind of might mean that we're not going to suddenly get up and walk out halfway halfway through this message now, unless it's the gospel that offends us, in which case I can't change that, unfortunately. But um, Paul is not advocating slavery here. So people like William Wilberforce, who fought for the abolition of slavery in the 19th century, are people who are very godly and actually are doing what God wanted in that context. It is, it is evil for a human being to own another human being and to feel like it's just that, that they're just their property. And that's not something you would see. Um, you wouldn't see that endorsed anywhere in, in Scripture. That's not something that you would, you would see. But that being said, how on earth do we apply this passage to us then? So we don't live, actually, we live in a, in a society where slavery is illegal. So actually, if you end up finding someone who is a slave, your responsibility as a citizen is to report that and actually do something about it. So how do we take a passage like this and apply it to our lives? And I would th- I'd say that the, probably the closest equivalent we'd have in our culture would be the idea of employers and employees. Right? So it's not quite the same, but you have someone who is in a position of authority who is telling you to do certain things to work for them and another person who essentially is submitting to that person and doing work for them. So that's probably where we would apply it most closely in our lives in terms of this passage. So we can learn some really helpful principles for how bosses, if there are some of you here, should treat your employees and how employees, which I imagine would probably be most of us, apart from those who are freelance, um, that would be how we, we could apply it to our lives. But we must remember all the way through that Paul isn't actually directly talking about employers and employees. And it's really important to remember that because some of the the grounding he uses for saying what he does here is in the fact that actually Christians are slaves of God and Christians are slaves of Christ. To say that a Christian is, is an employee of God kind of doesn't quite cut it. Like, it just doesn't really work to say, oh, yeah, God's my employer. And therefore, I hold him to account on the various British rules of how employers should deal with their employees. And so that's just not what the Bible says about the relationship that we have with God. So whilst we'll mainly apply this to the area of work today, we have to remember that Paul is speaking about masters and slaves because the language that he uses here is very heavily about actually grounding the idea of slavery and masters in the fact that ultimately all Christians have the same master. 
It's really important to remember that as we go through it. Are we all following? Okay, right, so let's look at slaves first, or employee, um, employees, if we would apply it to ourselves. So verses 5 to 8, so Paul speaks mostly to slaves here, probably because actually um, early Christianity seemed to be mainly made up, if you had slaves or masters, it was mainly slaves that would be part of early Christianity. So there's probably a lot more of them in the church, so he spends a bit more time. So he tells them to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as they would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Okay, so slaves or employees in our culture. This passage seems to suggest there could be here three ways of approaching work. And I'm going to ask Luke to help me out here a little bit. So for the sake of illustration, Luke is my highly qualified scribe slave. Um, and he's going to basically be doing my accounts. Um, so I am of some high-ranking Roman official at this point, which I will very much enjoy being. And um, Luke, I tried to think of a cool Latin name, but Lucas was the best I could come up with. Um, well, that's Greek, but... Here we go. Um, <laughs> so Luke is not currently respecting me as a master. But um, <laughs> what we can see is in this passage, you, you kind of there's three implied ways of working. So one one way would simply be not to work. So how this would work is Luke is supposed to be doing my accounts at the moment. So I've got a big business. I've got lots of agriculture going on, and he's doing my accounts. Luke could just decide, you know what? I'm really just I don't want to work. Just gonna. And it doesn't matter whether I'm telling him to do something. It doesn't matter whether I'm away, whether I'm at home. He's just he's putting his feet up. He's checking Facebook constantly. He's just not doing anything. Whatever Facebook, I don't know. A Roman tablet would probably just be a big chunk of stone or something. But you can imagine, like, the, probably I imagine all of us, some of us may be these kind of employees. Some of us may know these kind of employees. They're kind of em employees that drive their bosses insane because they're never doing any work. Either they're just kind of doing the bare minimum and it never quite cuts it, or they're just, every time they come into the office, they're browsing Facebook and they're not really doing their work. And the assumption in this passage is Paul would not endorse that. Paul would say, no, Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. Not slaves, just ref refuse to do any work. So if we're thinking in terms of how we want to approach work, this would be a wrong way of doing it. Um, Luke's just drawing a car at the moment. So again, so kind of just doodle, doodling as he, as he as is supposed to work. That is not a good way of going about work. So way number one, not working, not an option. Okay. Second, and this is something that Paul talks about explicitly, says, obey your earthly masters with a sincere heart, so with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, doing the will of God, rendering service for, with a good will. Um, so he talks about not, not as, sorry, verse six, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers. So another way to work would be basically the kind of work where you're ultimately aiming to please your employer or master. That's the ultimate thing that you're trying to do. So this could look like eye service, where I tell Luke to do something. Luke looks very busy. Good, he's doing my account. Two plus two, four. He's getting it correct as well. Excellent. And I go off on a journey, and immediately Luke just puts his feet up, starts checking Facebook. And as soon as I return from my journey, it doesn't seem like you've done that much. I mean, yeah, okay, 10 plus 10 was a tough sum, but I don't think my journey to, to Spain and back should have... Okay, and I go away again, and he just kind of, again, puts his feet up, and as soon as I'm looking, he's back to work. Again, we might, some of us might be that person, some of us might know that kind of person, where actually, if the boss is around, 
we start working at that point because they're looking at us. As soon as they go, we're like, ah, whatever. I'll just spend, browse on Facebook, check my emails, text my friends. Eye-pleasing. That's what Paul would call it. He says, don't do that. The second possibility with him working to ultimately please humans would be generically being people pleasers. Now, that might look like only doing work when someone's looking. So I'm going to basically make sure he's happy, but I'm not actually going to really work when he's not there. Alternatively, it might look like Luke going just working over time, going absolutely crazy, working all the way through the night, even when I'm not looking, because his ultimate desire is to please me. He has no sense that he's trying to serve anyone else apart from me, ultimately. So I could go away on a journey. He does not sleep at all. He's overtired, overworked, just does not stop. Again, some of us might be those, where actually we're kind of, we're up until 1 a.m. every single morning, even though we could actually stop working at that point. We just continually, continually, because ultimately... We want to make sure that it's our earthly bosses who are, who are pleased with us. That would be another way where you, and obviously wisdom to work that one out, actually, in our society with actually lots of high-powered, some very busy jobs. So there's wisdom that's required to know how to actually balance that. We're like, what does count as honoring God when I'm staying up till 1 a.m. doing work? And what actually counts as basically I'm just trying to impress my boss? So there's wisdom for that. And actually one of the Great ways that as a church we try and serve people in the workplace, whether that is the situation you're in or not, is a series of Saturdays called Faith at Work. And we've got one of those coming up on the 7th of May. It's one of the, there's only two left, aren't there, in this series. I've been to a couple of them. They're absolutely brilliant. So if you're in the workplace in any kind of capacity, come along. It's a brilliant, um, brilliant, brilliant thing to come, um, come to. And the next one is going to be, um, the guy who's talking is a guy called David Burroughs. He's an MP and he's going to be talking on the idea of integrity in the workplace, which I think is a huge thing. What do you do, for example, when your boss asks you to do something that doesn't actually morally stand right with you? That's a real challenge. How do you work that one out? How do you actually obey this passage whilst at the same time holding to integrity and holding to what the gospel tells us to do. So um, if actually you're in a situation where you're thinking, I, I don't actually know whether, like, it, I, I work really long hours, and actually I, I'm trying to figure out, am I doing this because I'm ultimately trying to please my boss, or because actually this is what my work requires of me, and that is what God would have me do? Um, you can chat to the elders and so on if you want wisdom, but also come along to that event. That will be really helpful just to have some people who have actually who've been through work and been through work in sometimes some contexts which are very high-powered, very demanding, and who have learned how to live out their faith in that situation. But the people-pleasing, and Luke is still going for it at this point, the people-pleasing, either just working when only when your boss is looking, or just not stopping work at all. You just don't know how to shut, shut off because you're ultimately trying to impress the person who's um, senior above you. Paul would not have that. People-pleasers, eye service, that's not what he wants. Instead... What Paul talks about is working in order to please Christ. And this is interesting. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. Now, I've read, read a little bit around this just to make, make sure of it, but it seems like this is what some commentators would suggest, is that the fear and trembling here isn't ultimately the slave going, oh my goodness, I'm so scared of my master. I'm terrified of what he's going to do to me. It seems like that when that expression is used, fear and trembling, in the New Testament, it's used to refer to a Christian worshipping God. And so a wrong kind of fear of trembling for Luke would be for him to be absolutely terrified of me. Everything he does is purely done out of fear of what I might do to him. The right way to do it is to say, actually, I fear and revere and honour God. And he's the one I'm ultimately serving. So I'm going to work hard 
I'm going to work really hard. I'm not just going to work when my, bo when my boss or my master's looking. So I'm looking, great, doing a good job. I go away, I go off on the journey, and he's still working. You're supposed to work at this point. <laughs> he's still working. But ultimately, he's not doing that out of fear of me. He's doing that out of reverence and fear of his master in heaven. And that's what Paul says. He says we should do that as slaves of Christ, which all of us are, ultimately, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. That's quite a shocking statement when you think about it. As to the Lord, not to man. So you're not supposed to obey your boss. No, you are. But what you're ultimately doing there is you're rendering service to God. Shocking statement. I wonder how many masters who maybe weren't Christians or maybe some who hadn't quite figured that out in their minds would read that passage and go, I cannot believe that Paul is telling slaves to obey God rather than me. How on earth could that be possible? But that's what Paul's saying. He says, work in a way where actually you're ultimately serving God rather than your earthly master, whether that's your boss or whether you're in the first century and you actually are a slave. So those would be three ways of working. First two, not working at all. We don't want that. Working just to please, please people, that ultimately falls down and it leads to exhaustion or it leads to just passivity. That's what we want is working heartily from the heart to please God and knowing that as we obey with integrity, our employers, or in Luke's case, his good master, I think, in that case, he's, he's actually doing it ultimately to please God. So thank you very much, Luke. You can take the table away. And Luke is now set free because he has worked hard enough to earn that. <laughs> so just bring it, bring it back to us a little bit. So I'm constantly going to be alternating between the language of slave and, empl and employee, employer, just to make sure that we're constantly remembering Paul is talking about a human being owning another human being in a society. Because I don't think we quite appreciate the, the, the gospel dynamic that's going on in this if we just see it as employer-employee. But for those of you who are employees... Does the way you look, would people look at it and think that shows me that they're ultimately worshipping God, God through their work? Or would they look at it and think that shows me that they're either worshipping themselves or that they're essentially serving and worshipping their boss? This is a question to ask ourselves. Does the way, the way we act comes out of the way we believe most of the time? You don't tend to do stuff that you don't believe in. Whether, whether that's something you do out of fear, you ultimately do it because you believe that other people's approval is better than you doing what's right, but we act out of what we believe, does the way you work actually show that you are ultimately serving Christ rather than ultimately serving your boss? Or does it show you're ultimately serving yourself rather than serving Christ? It's just a challenge for us to think about it. Are you the kind of person who actually, when the boss is away, just goes onto Facebook or doesn't really do much? Do you, do you, do you act differently when your boss walks into the room? That might be a bit of a clue. If you suddenly feel like you suddenly sit, up, sit upright and start working hard when your boss comes in, it might be a bit of a clue. It's a little bit like people who slow down at speed cameras. Suggests that there might be an issue of speeding going on. Are you the kind of person who just, as soon as the boss, your boss comes in, and not out of kind of, some of you may actually have bosses who are slightly oppressive, and that, that can be done out of fear a little bit, but actually not so much out of fear, but you're thinking, I'm not working hard at the moment, and I want my boss to think I am. So just let's be people who actually worship God through the way and Christ through the way that we work. And secondly, a bit more briefly, I imagine most of us here would probably be employees, but there might be some of us who actually do employ people, who would fit a little bit more broadly under the category of master. Um, so masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now again, thinking through it through a master's eyes in the first century in the Roman Empire, this would be an absolutely shocking statement for Paul to make. 
Because as a master, your slave was your property. You owned the slave. So in your mindset, you're thinking, well, if they don't work, I can beat them. That's fine. I'll just do whatever it takes to instill fear in them so that they obey me. I might not be nasty to them if they're, not, if they're, if they're relatively obedient to me. But as soon as they stop obeying me, I am going to... I'm going to lay the law down. and uh, uh, How dare you, Paul, tell me that I should treat them differently? They're my property. It would have been absolutely shocking. But Paul says, don't threaten them. Don't threaten them. He would probably not have had any problem with the idea of some kind of saying, okay, if you don't do that, I'm not going to pay you. That's probably appropriate. But the idea of threatening a slave and saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to beat you so bad, or just instilling fear in them, Paul says, no, don't do that. But the reason he gives is interesting. We might think the reason should be because it's not very nice, which is true. Or because you shouldn't treat another human being like that, which is also true. The reason he gives is actually, as far as God is concerned, you're both slaves anyway. There's no difference between you ultimately before God. It says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours, you can almost hear the masters going, <gasps> is in heaven. You both have the same master ultimately. You don't own this person. You're not actually their ultimate master. God is. And that's the reason Paul gives. I'm sure he would say it's not very nice to threaten. But the reason he does is he grounds it in what God has done in the gospel. And he always does that. Anytime there's some kind of practical thing that we should do with our lives, the New Testament writers always ground it in what God has done in the gospel. And Paul says, because of the fact that you both ultimately are slaves of God, you should remember, masters, not to treat them and threaten them because you're ultimately on a level for God. He says there's no partiality with God. Partiality is the idea of treating one person with, a, with preference. So a lot of the time that would be treating someone who has influence and riches better than you would treat someone who doesn't. But actually, let's, I, thought, I was trying to think of an illustration of this. You, get, if you, you can get loads of different people from loads of different backgrounds. People who look really strong, people who look relatively weak, people who actually who dress really fancily, really well, who clearly have a lot of money, and some people who just obviously don't have as much money, and you put them in an army uniform. There is no way of distinguishing suddenly between them. All of the appearances on the outside suddenly disappear. If you watch a, a, a parade, military parade, you're not looking at them thinking, oh, that guy comes from a wealthy background, that guy doesn't, oh, that guy's a, oh, yeah, that, that guy takes care of his health, that guy doesn't. They all look pretty much the same. And that's, that's part of the reason they're given a uniform. And actually, when God looks at masters and slaves, he doesn't see the master lifted up here and the slave kind of grovel on, groveling on the ground. He sees them both on the same level. He doesn't show partiality. He doesn't see a rich person and say, oh, you've got a lot of money. Okay, I'll, treat you, I'll let you off a little bit ease, more easily. And you, you don't have much money. I'm going to treat you more harshly. God shows no partiality. None of us ultimately do that. We might, be, we might be pretty good at it by human standards, but all of us, to a certain extent, will show some kind of partiality. God shows none. Child, adult, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, black, white, no partiality at all. And Paul's speaking to Master saying, do you realize that's the way God sees you? And he, how he sees your slaves, you're on a level playing field as far as he's concerned. So for those of you who are employers, might not necessarily be that many of us, but some of us might be, does the way you treat your employees reflect a culture of fear? where actually they're working under the impression that you are, you're just going to go mental at them if they don't deliver, or are they working in a culture where they feel they are accepted and supported and loved in the way that Christ loves us in the gospel? Think, does the way you treat your employees 
look like the way Christ treats his, his, his slaves, his followers, or would it look like the way a Roman master might a little bit more? So just something, again, for us to bear in mind at that point. But for all of us, and let's bring it back to kind of all of us together at this, at this stage, and let's remember now we're talking master's slaves, not just the idea of us being God's employees. There's a specific motivation that I haven't actually mentioned yet. So I've talked about the idea of trying to please Christ rather than pleasing humans. I've talked about the idea of no partiality before God's. But Paul actually gives a specific reason why, actually, in this case, slaves, but he would include anyone in it, should actually do good in their work. And that reason is judgment day. In verse 8, he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So Paul says, not, not, whether it's slave, free, master, male, female, whatever it is, there is a day where every single thing, good thing that you have done in Christ will be rewarded. And that is a point where God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't look at a rich person or a master and say, oh, you did a really good thing. I'm going to reward you far more than this slave who did the same thing, but actually is just happened to be a slave, so I'm not going to give him as much. Paul says, you will be given back everything that you have done well. That is a re- that's a real encouragement to work. I think a lot, a lot of Christians can be uneasy with the idea of reward. They're like, no, no, I should ultimately work just because it's the right thing, right thing to do. Because God, God loves me and I should just respond in gratitude, which is true. But all the way throughout the New Testament, you have promise of reward. If you do good, you will be rewarded on the final day when God will render to each according to their works. There's this constant refrain that what you do now will be rewarded if it is good. And actually, we shouldn't be ashamed of that. I thought a way of thinking about it could be the idea of actually investing in a current account or in an ISA. So for those of you who know as little about finances as I do, current account, you put money in it, you can access it immediately. There's not really any interest on it. So you put £10 in, in 10 years' time, unless you have a really fancy current account, it will still be £10 unless you've got, unless you got rid of it. And you can access that money whenever you want. That would be a little bit like working to please people. You put the hard work in and you get the immediate reward. Your boss loves you and you impress people. But actually, it's far better if you want to get a real good reward to invest in an ISA, which is an account that you put money in and you can't touch it for a certain amount of time. But you know that whilst you can't touch that money, it's actually gaining interest. So the £10 that you put in, in 10 years' time, may have become £15. And then in 20 years' time, may have become more. And actually, Paul's saying invest in eternity. Invest in the way you work, in the fact that on the final day, God will render you back. It's like we're paying into an ISA. We're saying, actually, the the good work I do now out of worship to God is going to give me a far greater reward than the work I might do in order to just please human beings. And sometimes that might look like doing the same thing practically, but the attitude might be completely different. And so Paul's encouraging us, make sure you invest long term in your work and making that the ultimate aim. Don't be scared of the idea of rewards. Don't fall into the trap of saying, oh, no, I should just work to please God because that's what I should do. You work to please God, but there is a promise that God will repay. Every single good thing you have done in Christ will be given back to you. That is inc- like if, you, if, you, if we generally got hold of that and believe that every single good work we did for Jesus, he would repay back to us. I think that would probably change the way we think of doing good works. I think we'd probably be tripping over each other and think, how, how many good works can I do? But the New Testament encourages us to do that, to think that way. You know, like, yeah, it's not done out of legalism. It's not a kind of like, oh, I have to do this to please God. It's saying, no, God has saved me. Christ has saved me. And now I get to work in order to worship him. But I also get to work in order to invest in eternity. 
and reap that on the final day. And so I think where I want to finish this a little bit is to actually encourage us, those of us who are here today, actually, and you've been listening to this, you might have thought initially, oh my goodness, masters and slaves, I cannot believe that that's the case. Hopefully I've calmed that a little bit. But you've, you've been listening, you're thinking, I actually, I don't know Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know where I stand on this whole thing. Well, my encouragement to you would be this, that actually, ultimately, all of us here who are in Christ are actually Christ's slaves, which might sound very demeaning, but we have a master in heaven who is good, who rewards good work, and actually who, who, who treats us in a way that a very, the, think of the most impartial, godly master that you ever possibly could, and multiply that by a billion, you get God, essentially. So we have the ultimate master, and the reason we are his slaves is that, is that he has bought us. You buy a slave. They become your property. God has bought us with the blood of his son. And before we came to know Christ, we were enslaved. The Bible says we were enslaved to all kinds of different things, whether that's ourselves, whether that's other people's approval, whether that's sin, whether that's wrongdoing, whatever it is, we were enslaved. We had to worship and serve something, and God gave his son so that through that price that was paid, he could buy us back so that he could be our master. Not in an oppressive, domineering way, but in a loving, caring way. And so my encouragement to you would be, please, would you respond to that? Would you put, put your trust in Jesus and say, you know what, I'm going to turn away. You repent. I'm going to turn away from the life that I've been living where I've been serving and enslaved to various things, whatever that is. And I'm going to turn. I'm going to say, I want you to be my master now. I want, you to, I want to serve you. I want to know what it is to serve a godly, loving master rather than all of this stuff that I could serve, which ultimately isn't going to please me. So that's what I'd say for those of you here who are not actually Christians, who haven't been baptized into Christ yet. But actually for those of us who are in Christ, the way I want to finish is by actually by us all taking bread and wine together. And the reason for that is, it was just struck me during, during worship, is when Paul talks about slave and free in lots of other contexts, the way he does it is to talk about now that we are in Christ, all distinctions don't no longer exist in terms of our standing before God. In Galatians 3, Paul says, those of you who have been baptized into Christ, who have put their faith in him, who have been baptized in water into him, have put on Christ, there is no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male or female, add any kind of other social distinctions that we would make. And Paul says, the, level, the, the field's levels. You are all one in Christ. And I want us to finish by, a, what if, it would be, if it would be possible, to get some guys to pass the bread and the, the juice around. For those of you who aren't actually Christians, don't feel the need to take it at all. It's not like the bread in and of itself has any magical power. But for those of us who are, who have been baptized into Christ, who follow him, let's kind of pass the, is it okay if we get some people to do that? Is it all right? And let's just pass it around, all grab it, and we're all going to take it at the same time. And we're going to basically, what we're doing is we are proclaiming, as we take this, we're proclaiming Christ's death, we're remembering his death, we're remembering the fact he's going to come back, and we are also remembering the fact that all of us, whatever background we come from, I hardly doubt that many of us come from a background of having been slaves or masters, but whatever background we're from, we are one in Christ. We are made one through being united with him. So we just want to pass that around. In fact, if the band could come up, that would be great. I want you you guys to be able to take part in this as well, but we can then lead into a time of praise. So I want to finish, us by, finish by looking at the gospel. And what we're doing now is a very visual, physical picture of what Christ has done. Paul says in, I'm going to read a few verses in 
1 Corinthians 11, where St. Paul's giving instruction about how to do this. He says, I received from the Lord, from Jesus, what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are going to proclaim the Lord's death together. And actually, by doing that, we are also going to proclaim that whatever background, age group, social group, whatever background we come from, we are one in Christ. And we're going to then worship God for the amazing gospel that there is no longer slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. So hopefully that's just been helpful practically for work, but I wanted us to finish with the gospel and the gospel that brings unity and oneness in Christ. So um, we make sure these guys can have some as well, and then we'll, uh, um, let's all take it together first, and then you guys can lead straight. Is that all cool? Yep. So we'll just wait for another minute or so. I think I should probably get a bit as well, actually, shouldn't I? Right, I'm going to pray, and then when I finish praying, we're going to all take the bread and the wine together and physically demonstrate the unity that Christ has brought through the gospel. And uh, Father, I thank you. Thank you that ultimately there is no slave or free. There is no male or female in, in terms of our standing before you, Lord God. You, we are all one. We are one body in Christ. And thank you that every time that we take of this, of this loaf, representing your broken body, we are partaking in your body, Lord God. Thank you that every time we drink the, the, the wine which represents your blood, we are partaking in your blood. And I thank you, Father, that we can remember the fact that you were crucified for us and that because of that, you have brought oneness. That means we, we can look at a passage like this and saying we are ultimately your slaves. We're not a human being's slave. None of us is ultimately a human being's slave. We are your servants. We are your slaves. And you are the best master that anyone could ever have. And we want to remember you for that today. In Jesus' name.